pray, O oh Lord, that this morning some would lay hold to that life perhaps for the first time. And those of us who have that life, which really is life, that we would be caused by your word to enjoy it more fully. Oh Lord, we pray, speak to us by your word. Your servants listen, oh Lord, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to be saved? It's common to hear people say things like they got saved or someone else was saved. What does that mean? What does the person do to get saved? Is the person saved because they, quote, asked Jesus into their hearts? Or they, quote, gave their life to Christ? Is the person saved because they walked up an aisle at the end of a church service like this one? Or is getting saved done when a person makes, quote, a profession of faith or prays the sinner's prayer? And what happens to a person when they're saved? Do they feel all tingly inside? Do they hear angels and harps? Do the heavens open? Does a saved person become perfect when they're saved and, and now live without sin? Are there a bunch of new rules to now live by because they're saved? Things they can't do, like go to movies or other kinds of things. Saved is a common word. It's an ordinary word. We save money. We save coupons to save money. We save a child's baby shoes. We save kittens from trees. It's an ordinary word that in the Christian life takes on extraordinary, takes on special meaning. Knowing what salvation involves makes being saved all the more wonderful to us. In Zechariah chapter 12 and 13, God speaks again to Israel and he gives them a vision of a coming day. And it's the day of salvation. If you're new to this series or you're just joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through Zechariah. It's in the Old Testament. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. He's not minor because his message is somehow smaller. It just means the book is shorter compared to the major prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel. And Zechariah comes on the scene about the same time as those historical books of, of Ezra and Nehemiah. The people of Israel have just come out of captivity in Babylon and Persia. They've been in captivity for 70 years, and now they're back in the land with instruction from God to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city walls, to really rebuild the entire culture and society, to reestablish the religious worship of God. And they've got enemies. And they've seen roadblocks and hindrances. And God uses Zechariah and other prophets to encourage them to continue to work, to build the temple, to build a city, to reestablish his people. And in this chapter, he's going to lift their eyes from their present struggle. And he's going to allow them to see down the corridors of time. And he's going to allow them to see what salvation entails. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to hang our thoughts on, on four points. Four points. When God gets ready to save, 
colon, here are the four things. When God gets ready to save his people, number one, he protects them from the world. He protects them from the world. Number two, when God gets ready to save his people, number two, he pierces their hearts. He pierces their hearts. Number three, when God gets ready to save his people, he not only protects them from the world and pierces their heart, but he purges them of idols. He purges them of idols. And number four, when God gets ready to save his people, he purifies them for himself. He purifies them for himself. That's the message of Zechariah chapters 12 and 13. Let's take that first point. When God saves his people, he protects them from the world. Look at me at Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 and 9. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its riders with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. You see here in the opening of this prophecy in chapter 12, we get the introduction uh, Zechariah uses that phrase that we've seen before, the burden of the word of the Lord. In other words, he's being pressed. It's like, as another prophet said, fire shut up in his bones. He has this prophecy that is weighing on him that he, he has to preach and he has to proclaim. And in verse 1, he introduces us to God in this, in this sentence. He talks about the, the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So the one who's truly speaking in the prophecy is not Zechariah, but God. All the prophets and the writers of the Bible speak of God as speaking through them. They spoke as they were directed. They gave the very words of God. That's why we call the Bible the Word of God. This God who speaks in verse 1 is also creator. He, he made everything, things as great and, as, and expansive as the heavens and the earth, and things invisible and particular 
as the human soul, the spirit in a man. And in, so say, in saying this, Zechariah is also teaching us that not only is God our maker and our creator, but he's also introducing us to a God who is both transcendent and imminent. The fancy words that mean he's a, above everything and he's near everything. This is God. And this God speaks. And notice now he directs Zechariah's attention to a particular day. He says, on that day, several times, right? You see it there in verse 3, on that day. Again in verse 4, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, on that day. So we're looking forward to a, a day that is to come. And what Zechariah, Zechariah sees uh, on that day is that God will protect Israel from their enemies in the world. So look at the second part of verse 2. There's a siege of Jerusalem that will also be against Judah. The whole nation is surrounded. Second part of verse 3, all the nations of the earth will gather against Jerusalem. It's going to be a day when Israel, God's people, will be all alone in the world with every nation coming against it as its enemy. But God will protect them. Notice the images of strength and victory that God uses through this, through this section. Verse 2, Jerusalem will be a, a cup of staggering to all the surrounding people. I mean, to, to come against Jerusalem will be to sort of get yourself drunk, right? Like strong drink, the people will stagger around them. Verse 3, Jerusalem will be a heavy stone for all the people. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. You will throw out your back before you overthrow God's people. Verse 6, the clans of Judah will be like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place. Uh, this brings to mind the image of a forest fire, doesn't it? How often those great blazes begin with a small campfire, someone not quite putting the fire out. Someone dropping a cigarette in the woods. And that small fire, that small spark lands upon dry and brittle leaves and grass. And soon you have this raging fire that, that consumes acres and acres and, and everything in its path. That's what it's going to be like to come against Israel on that day. They're going to be a, a flaming pot. They're going to be a torch among dry kindling, dry leaves, and they will burn their enemies like a wildfire. The entire world comes against Israel, but notice, notice who stands with Israel. Did you see the repetition of that phrase, I will? Verse 2, behold, God says, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. Verse 3, I will make Jerusalem. Look again at verse 4. I will strike every house with panic and his riders with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open to, to watch over them. When I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Verse 6. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot. Look down at verse 9. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. When God gets ready to save his people, the first thing he does is protect them from being destroyed by the world. The battle is the Lord's. It doesn't matter how many come against you. If you belong to the Lord, he will keep and protect you. The Lord is our shield and our defender, our strong tower. 
the protector of his people. And verses 1 to 9 reveal two reasons as to why God protects his people in this way. First of all, notice, so they will know that their strength comes from him. Verse 5, see it there? Then the clans of Judah will say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength, how? Through the Lord of hosts. And that title, Lord of hosts, might be translated the Lord of armies. Through the, through the armies of heaven, they get their strength, their God. Israel need to know where their strength would come from. They just come from exile. They're a defeated people. They have no armies. They have no government. They have no city walls. They are, they are starting from the ground up with enemies all around them. And the question is, who's going to protect us? God answers them through the prophet. I will. I will. I got you. I will protect you. And he wants them to know that their strength does not come from horses and chariots. Their strength comes from the name of the Lord, their God. Amen. Notice the second thing. God protects his people so that all of his people will be saved from the world. Did you notice that? Look at verse 7. All of the people from the north and the south, both, both halves of the kingdom, the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. The kingdoms north and south will, will know God's protection. But notice also all the people, small and great. Look at verse 8. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David the king. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. You see what's happening here? It's marvelous. When God protects his people, he doesn't just protect the strong. He protects the weak. And then he takes the strong, like, king, like the king and David's household, and he makes them even mightier, not for their own sake, but notice, so that they would go before the weak. The strong protect the weak when God protects his people. And so he's going to deliver them. He's going to protect them in such a way that they know it comes from him and in such a way that nobody is left out. When God gets ready to say, he first protects us from the world. Israel had enemies all around him. What about us? Well, our enemies are not the enemies of ancient Israel. The New Testament tells us that our enemies are the world the flesh, and the devil. This world system, which is opposed to God and opposed to the people of God and opposed to the rule of God, all of its values and all of its objectives and all of its desires are hostility toward God. And in our flesh, in our sinful nature, we conspire with the world against ourselves. And so the sinful man wants what the sinful man wants, which is sin. The sinful man leans into the world with delight and goes after those things which are not God as if they were God. And, and, and then there's the enemy, the devil, behind it all. He's real. He lays subtle snares. He seeks whom he can devour. And beloved, if God were to leave us to face the world, the flesh, and the devil by ourselves, we would not stand. Oh, think about when you were in the world. I ain't got to talk about you. I talk about me. I love the club. I love the drink. I don't, I don't say this to advertise it to any college student or prospective college student. I arrived the first day of college with two cases of beer. 
See, they laughing because they know. <laughs> and live the prodigal life. Sought to do prodigal things. Wound up worshiping a God who was not God as a Muslim. Hated and was being hated. Think about your former life. If God were to leave you to that life, you would not be saved. The first thing God must do is protect you from yourself and to protect you from the world and to protect you from Satan, who you was really saving and who was really, who you were really serving and who was out to destroy you. Don't think it a small thing, beloved, that you're still alive. Don't think it a small thing that God has given you another day. Don't think it a small thing that God has been pleased to give you opportunity to hear this very sermon. He has kept you alive. He has protected you. He is guarding you from your enemies in the world, the flesh, and the devil that you might be saved. And this informs our prayers, doesn't it? We got loved ones who aren't yet Christians, who aren't yet escaped the judgment of God that's coming upon the world. Well, how do we begin? Where do we start in, in, in sort of seeing our hopes for their salvation come to pass? Isn't it on our knees in prayer asking God, first of all, to protect them? Oh, God, spare my son or daughter. Spare my husband or wife. Spare my aunt and uncle. Spare my college classmates, my, my coworkers. Spare them in this world. Protect them from the world, the flesh, and the devil. They, they're going to destroy themselves, Lord, unless you restrain them with your loving arms and you bring them back from the danger that we're all in apart from you. Isn't that where we begin on our knees in prayer, praying for our kids and our loved ones that God might protect them? I remember not long ago, praying for the protection of my, my own children. I prayed something like this. I said, Lord, uh, protect them when I'm not with them. The Lord nudged me. I said, what do you think I'm doing when they are with you? <laughs> I said, Lord, protect them from my example. <laughs> oh, yeah. We can fall into that, can't we? As if they are all right when they're with us. But when we can't see them, they're in danger. No, beloved. We need God to protect them all the while, even from the imperfections of our example. When God gets ready to save, this is where he starts. It all begins with keeping us safe from our enemies and not letting our enemies finally destroy us. But he goes on. God, number two, when he saves his people, he pierces their hearts. Look at me beginning in verse 10 down to chapter 13, verse 1. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mountain of mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. On that day, there should be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them 
from sin and uncleanness. Uh, the focus in verse 10 turns from the nations and protection from the nations to look now at Israel itself. The Verse 10 says they're the house of David. Of course, refers to King David and his descendants. God made a promise to King David back in 1 Samuel that, that one of his descendants would rule on his throne forever in an everlasting kingdom. So God starts with the highest monarch, the highest ruler, the person with the highest status in the land. But you notice in verse 10, he comes down to the nameless ordinary people too, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And God promises from David to Job to pour out a spirit of grace and please for mercy on them. What does that mean? It means that God will show grace or kindness to Israel. Grace is undeserved kindness. You do not earn it. You cannot demand it. There's no purchase price to offer. In fact, you've done and I've done everything to disqualify ourselves in our sin forever getting any kindness from God. That's what makes it grace. And so God shows kindness to us anyway. The image of, of pouring suggests that, that he will show a lot of kindness. He will, he will wash them in his undeserved favor or grace. Now notice, this grace in verse 10 creates in them pleas, begging, uh, prayers, beseeching, pleas for mercy. In other words, when they see the kindness of God, that kindness will push them to ask for mercy for their sin. And asking for mercy, they are asking that they be punished less than their sins deserve. That's what mercy is. Think of the criminal that, that we say throws himself on the mercy of the court. He's guilty. He knows he's guilty. He ain't arguing no more. He's saying, judge, take it easy on me. And here they are pleading with God, take it, take it easy on us. The, the goal of God's kindness, beloved, in this text and in life is our repentance. Look again at verse 10. Gives the purpose there. It's going to pour out this spirit of grace and mercy and pleas for mercy. Notice, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps over a firstborn. In other words, they're going to look on God and they're going to see that their sins have pierced God. The word pierced there is strong. It, it, it means killed. It has the idea of killed in mind. They're going to see that their sins are killing God, and, and they're going to weep for what they see because of their sin, and they're going to mourn. Notice now how strong the mourning will be. They will be mourning like someone who's lost their only child or their firstborn child. In the culture of Israel, the firstborn child was the one who inherited everything from the father. Is the one who extends the family name. An only child, of course, is, is precious because they're the, they're the only child. And so God here is, is saying, these folks are going to weep as if they have lost the most precious thing, person in their family. If you never lost a child, you don't yet know how debilitating that is. Paul, Chris, and I, we miscarried our first child three months into the pregnancy. We, we learned when we were to hear the baby's heartbeat for the first time that we had lost, had lost the baby. And that, that put a brother on his back. 
in, in depression and weeping. We had mounted so much hope on the birth of this child. It was in a time in our marriage where we were distant and cold and, and kind of roommates passing each other. We were without Christ and without hope in the world, as the Bible puts it. And we were making the child an idol, and then the child was gone. And we were weeping. It's just what's in view in this text. They will see their sin, and they will weep and mourn as if they had lost their only child. And the purpose for God being kind is to bring them to this very point of weeping for their sin. There's a New Testament parallel to this verse. It's Romans chapter 2, verse 4. You can look at it later, but let me read it to you now. Paul asked this question, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? In other words, are you taking God's kindness and forbearance and patience for granted? Not knowing, the Bible says, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Bible, beloved, the Bible is saying to us, the very reason you're still alive, the very reason God is being kind to you, the very reason he blesses us though we don't deserve it, the very reason he gives us good gifts beyond our imagination, is that in the kindness itself and in the patience in itself, in the forbearance or putting up with us in all of our weakness and our corruptions, in the very act of God's kindness. We might see his kindness. We might recognize our undeservedness because of our sin. And that very kindness might cause us to turn around back to God in repentance. And it's by this kindness that God, though he was pierced by their sins, pierces Israel in their hearts causing them to weep and to mourn for their sin. They weep, verse 11, like the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. I'm reading the commentaries. Don't nobody know what that means. <laughs> but we do know what verse 10 means. <laughs> Always interpret the unclear passages in light of the clear passages. Verse 10 is clear. Notice the extent of their mourning, verses 12 to 14. It's the land, the entire people shall mourn in repentance. But notice also, each family by itself. In other words, it's no general national holiday that everybody gets off but nobody takes seriously. So tomorrow we're going to celebrate Martin Luther King Day. Some of us. All of us will have the day off. But only a few will go commemorate and remember the man, remember his sacrifice, remember the message and reflect on how far the country has come in civil rights and, and, in, and in racial equality and all those things that were true 50 years ago that are, that are less true today. Most folks will go play golf or do whatever you do, take a long nap, sleep in because you ain't got to drive the kids to school. Right? So there's a national holiday that everybody gets but a few people lean into. That's not what's happening in this text. So that's why it says the whole land is mourning. And then it comes down and gets real particular. Each house, each family, 
This mourning and repentance over sin is universal because it's particular in every circumstance. Every Israelite is going to have their heart pierced by their transgression against God. Every family is going to be shut up together mourning and weeping and crying and praying and seeking God for his mercy. Notice there, it's the, it affects the king's family, the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. It affects the prophet's family, the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. It affects the priest, the, the family of the house of Levi by itself and, and their wives. And Shemai is a, a son of Levi. He's a, he's a priest as well. All the families, notice at the end there, all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves, will be mourning in repentance. Beloved, this is true repentance deep and wide. Notice how the section ends. When God saves his people, he pierces their hearts, but he pierces their hearts to bring them cleansing. Zechariah 13, 1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Without repentance, there can be no salvation. Repentance and faith are like two sides of a dollar bill. Uh, you erase one side and the currency is worthless. You must have a head and a tail side to the coin. Repentance and faith are joined together like that so that without repentance of sin, there can be no salvation. But where people truly repent, there is a fountain that cleanses them from all their sin and all uncleanness. The fountain of verse 1 brings to mind the fountain in the, in the tabernacle, in the temple, where the, where the priests would ceremoniously clean themselves before they went to serve before the Lord at the altar. Here now, what you see is a picture of the entire nation being cleansed that way and becoming, as it were, a nation of priests. We see there a forecast of 1 Peter 2, 9, don't we? God wants for himself a kingdom of priests. And they are ready as a nation to serve God because they have repented and been cleansed beneath this fountain. This is important, beloved. We began by asking, what is it to be saved? I want you to see from the Bible that to be saved does not mean presuming on God's kindness, taking it for granted. But when God really saves us, his kindness breaks us in repentance over sin. There is no salvation without repentance. There is no sinner who is saved and becomes a child of God who sins without God's gracious punishment and correction. Our sin hurts God. So the knowledge of our sin hurts us. We won't even know how bad our sin is without God's grace showing us. We wouldn't even call for mercy without God's grace. The true difference between the nations in verses 1 to 9 and Israel in verses 10 down to 13 and 1, it's not something in the nations. The true difference between them is God's grace. One receives it, the other doesn't. When we say I am saved, part of what we must mean is I am repentant of my sin and have been cleansed of all uncleanness. When God gets ready to save his people, he protects them from the world. He pierces them in their hearts. Number three, he purges them of idols. That's what we see in verses 2 to 6 of chapter 13. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. 
And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his wisdom, or excuse me, of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. A remarkable passage. Verse 2 says, God cuts off the names of the idols. Not only from the land, but did you notice? From their memory. They shall be remembered no more. This means that the only true and living God will be known from that point on. All the false gods, which really are not gods, will be removed completely. And beloved, the Lord must rid our memories of our idols, or our memories will send our hearts back to the idol. The return to idolatry begins with remembering. A person thinks back to that thing they once served and, and bowed down to. It could be anything. It could be a job. It could be a relationship. It could be money. It could be power. It could be children and family. We can turn anything into an idol, beloved. But you have this fond thought of it. You remember what you enjoyed about it. And with that memory comes longing. And before long, the mind, through the memory, directs the heart back toward the idol. And if we don't catch that thing at the point of memory, we sometimes look up and it's too late. We back down into idolatry. We back down serving the thing as if it were God. But when God saves his people now, he, he smashes the idols of the land and the mind. In other words, God himself does what's necessary for us to live out the first commandment. You should have no other gods before me. In fact, you should have no other gods at all. My name, God says, will be the only name remembered in the land. I will be the only God worshipped by the people. And the text goes on to say he not only purges his people of idols, he also purges his people of the idols' representatives, the false prophets. Every mention of prophet here in this section is, is, you can put in air quotes. These are not true prophets, but false prophets. So verse 2, the second part says there, and also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. That's how we know these are false prophets, because of that reference to the spirit of uncleanness. In the New Testament gospels, unclean spirits refer to demons. And the New Testament teaches that behind every idol is a demonic power. We've been thinking about this in Thursday night Bible studies these last couple of weeks, but let me give you a couple texts. You can write them down and look at them later. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6. The Bible says there, we know that an idol has no real existence. In other words, the thing that's being called God isn't real. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 
And a little bit later, a couple chapters later, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 19 and 20, Paul picks up this thought again. He says, what do I imply? He's talking about food sacrificed to idols. That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You see, behind every idolatry is an unclean spirit, is a demon. And God in Zechariah is looking down to that day when he's going to smash the idols in the land and in memory, and that day when he's going to remove from the land the false prophets driven by an unclean spirit preaching false things and preaching a false god. If God's going to save his people, he's going to purge them. He alone will be God in their lives. There will be no rivals. There will be no seconds. Only God. And this is how thorough the purging is going to be. Look, look at Zechariah 12, or excuse me, 13, verses 3 and 4. It's going to be so thorough that if one of these cats stands up and tries to prophesy, his mama and daddy are going to say, you prophesying. <laughs> you prophesying. You lying. You lying. And we going to put you to death. So strong will be the people's loyalty to God that it will rightly eclipse the bonds of blood. So adamant will they be for the truth of God that even family who misrepresent God and falsely prophesy in his name, they will support the harshest discipline against him. But not only that, notice, he's going to purge them so thoroughly that the, that the false prophets themselves in this, in this expose, they're going to deny ever being prophets, verses 4 and 5. But I ain't no prophet, I'm a farmer. I'm trying to put that on me, man. I, I'm a farmer, man. Have been since I was born. Right? They're going to leave that alone. And even when people, verse 6, come to them and say, man, what are those marks on your back? Because in the ancient world, so much idolatry involved beating yourself as an act of worship. What are those scars on you? They're going to lie and say, man, I was out hanging with my friends, man, and oh, my boy's house, and we got into it, and these are the the blows I took in my friend's house. No. God will so remove the idols from his people that no one ever again will want to claim an idol but only stand for the name of the Lord. So you best believe when God gets ready to save us, he's going to start breaking stuff. He's going to start smashing stuff. The things that we worship, like Gollum with the ring, my precious, and we try to keep from God, he will smash it. He will break it. He will leave it in dust so that we can focus only on him. Well, how do we apply this? Well, let's freely give up our idols now. What things are idols in our lives? Let us confess them. Let us be rid of them. Let us break up with them. Let us quit our love affair with them. Let us throw them out before the Lord. That the Lord can smash them where it doesn't hurt us because if he smashes them in our hearts, we'll feel it. Cast them out. Be done with them. 
that you might be holy, the Lord's. That's his purpose in saving us. When the Lord saves us, he protects us from our enemies. When the Lord saves us, he pierces us in our hearts. When the Lord saves us, he purges us from idols. Number four, when the Lord saves us, he purifies us for himself. That's what we see in that poem in verses 7 to 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be, be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, The Lord is my God. This is still the same future day when Israel sees the one they pierced. The fountain is open and the idols are smashed. Verse 6, with that talk of the wounds, seems to trigger the thoughts that begin in verse 7. The piercing of the sword of the shepherd. The shepherd here is a good shepherd. Notice in verse 6, he stands next to God. This is the true shepherd spoken of in Zechariah 10 and 11. But now God sends a sword against his own shepherd. And when they strike the shepherd, the sheep scatter for a time. Two-thirds of the sheep or people will be cut off, but a remnant, a third, at the end of verse 8, are left alive. Notice what God promises to do with that one-third in verse 9. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. But when God saves the people, he purifies them through fire and testing. The image here is of a, a smelting furnace used to, to separate from precious metals like silver and gold the, the dross, the, the impure elements, so that when it's done, it's, it's just pure silver and, and pure gold. But that, that takes heat, that takes fire, that takes testing. The furnace represents the trials of life, the trials that God's people suffer are meant by God to make them better not bitter. The trials are meant to remove the dross so that what's left in our lives is silver and gold. Again, the New Testament talks about that day, that day of judgment when when our works of wood, hay, and stubble are burned up, but what's left is gold and precious stones. God saves his people and he purifies them. When he saves his people, He means to separate us from every unclean thing. God says, I will make you pure. I will melt off the imperfections so that you are refined like silver. You will be gold to me. Some people have an idea that they are saved, but they're okay in their sin. 1 John 1 says those people lie to themselves. If God saves us, then God purifies us. And here's why. It's so his people will be fit or proper to go by his name. Verse 9, they will call upon my name and I will answer them. 
I will say, I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. There's a holy kind of pride in this. In other words, when God does his purifying work, he'll be pleased to call us his people. Beloved, don't you know if you're Christ? Christ has appointed a day when he will hold you up before the universe and he will call angels in heaven and demons in hell and all of humanity for all of time to look at you and God will say before the audience of them all, this is my people. These are my folks, the ones I purged, the ones I purified, the ones I protected, the ones I saved for myself. And you'll, you'll hear that on that day when God before all of creation says, this is my people. You'll hear that day and your heart will break forth in joy and you will say, and you are my Lord and you are my God. <laughs> what do I have in heaven besides you? On earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. Listen, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are my portion forever. That's going to be the wedding vow. That's going to be the day when the bridegroom comes and gathers his bride and he stands before the company of all creation and they exchange those vows. When the father stands as priest and Christ as bridegroom and the father says to Christ, do you take this bride, this church to be yours? And Christ says, that's my people. I do. And the church, he turns the father to the church and says, do you take this groom to be your wedded husband? And the church says, that is my Lord. And in all of eternity, redeemed sinner and perfect Savior live in consummated joy and love. On that day, you will hear the Savior say, you are mine. Yodi, you are mine. Andrew, you are my people. Peterson, you are mine. You hear on that day, Elizabeth, the Savior say to you, you are my people. Daniel, he will say to the world that you are known by his name, that you belong to him. Tim, that day, on that day, having been washed beneath that fountain, Christ will before the universe say, you are my people. And all God's people on that day, like one great chorus, will bow the knee and raise the voice and praise God the Father, declaring that Christ is Lord. What a day of rejoicing that's going to be. This pattern of salvation is not something just for Israel. God didn't just protect Israel. God didn't just pierce Israel's heart. God didn't merely purge idols from Israel. And God didn't just purify Israel to be his people. But in these two chapters, we have the very pattern of the New Testament gospel itself. In fact, there's so many texts in this passage which point to Christ, which are quoted by Christ, which are quoted by the apostles. 
It is Christ who, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, is the one whom we will look on, on him whom we have pierced. Our sins pierced the Son of God. And on Calvary's cross, a a Roman soldier pierced him in his side, and from his side flowed blood and water. He's the one that was pierced because of our sins, to, to make atonement for our sins, to redeem us from our sins. And when he comes again, we will, the whole creation, look upon the one whom we have pierced. But Christ, too, is that fountain. The cross is the fullest demonstration of what our sins have done to God. They have required nothing less than the sacrifice of his son in order to redeem us from our sins. And in the shedding of Christ's blood, a fountain is open wide. We, we sing of it in our favorite hymns, don't we? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn where? From Emmanuel's veins. And sinners, what? Plunge beneath that flood. What happens? They lose all their guilt and stains. So when Zechariah 13, 1 points to this fountain, it is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on Calvary's cross. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So in the same way that God protected his people, God also now pierces his people. And it's Christ who is the one that bears the wounds on his back. Not the false prophets who imitate Christ, who try to stand in his place. The real wounded one is the Son of God who was whipped for us, who was crushed for us, who was nailed with an open wounded back on a scarring, thorny cross. It is this Christ who has borne his wounds for us. And by his stripes, the writer says, we are healed. And is not Christ the shepherd that was stricken? He's the one at the right hand of God the Father from all of creation. Who comes into the world in human flesh. Who says of himself in John 10 that he is the the great shepherd of the sheep. And his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. And he is the one like a lamb led to the slaughter who was stricken and afflicted just as the prophet said he would be, who was killed and crushed in our place bearing the wrath of God for our sin. That's the sword that pierced him, who dies in our place and three days later is raised again from the grave. And so he lives right now at the right hand of the Father. He is the overseer of our souls. He is the the great shepherd of the sheep. And he is coming again to gather all those who are his. He is the one who by his spirit right now is purging us and purifying us and conforming us to his image and his likeness, readying us for that day when he appears in his glory so we would see his glory and share in it with him. The day that Zechariah sees... It's the day of Christ, the coming of the Lord into the world to die for sinners. And not just the crucifixion, but the resurrection of the Lord for our justification. And not just the the resurrection, but the ascension of the Lord into the heavens to the right hand of the Father. And not just the ascension, but the coming again of the Lord to gather his bride and to begin eternity. Oh, Zechariah was screaming, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And today, if you would repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus, 
then God's protection of you will not have failed. God will pierce you for your sins, but he will wash you of them. God will purge you of your idols, but only to purify you for his love. Oh, beloved, if you've not yet put your faith in Christ, do so now and live forever in his love. Let's pray together. That you would protect us from the world, the flesh, and the devil so that we could hear the word of life. And we thank you, O Lord, that you would pierce our hearts over sin so that we could be washed, O Lord, in the blood of Christ. And we thank you that you would purge us of idols, that you would remove from us things that were not God and take them out of, our pla- out of your place and out of our memory so that we would worship you alone. And we thank you, O Lord, that you are purifying us for that day to come when we shall see you and be with you. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Send the angel to blow the trumpet, shout from heaven, split the sky, descend in glory with all the host of heaven, shout and call the dead from their graves, and shout and call the living who are in you to meet you in the air and take us to be with you in your glorious kingdom forever. The Spirit and the bride say, come. But until you come, continue your work of protecting. Continue your work of piercing. Continue your work of purging. Continue your work of purifying, we pray. If there's one here, Lord, who has not been saved, ask them what they're waiting for. Give them grace to repent, to call upon your name to flee from idols, to trust in Christ alone, and to begin to live the life that you have called them to. Oh, Lord, do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.